Uh, but I'm very excited to be here, very excited to share with you from Joshua chapter 20. Uh, it's, it's a great passage, and you, you might pick up that we've come some way since last week. Last week, Amanda shared with us, and she shared with us from Joshua chapter 10. So we've skipped a whole chunk of this book. Uh, this, you know, fast-tracking, got to get through it quickly. People don't, you know, don't have a, the attention span for a 40-chapter a 40, uh, series. So we're going we're gonna to fly through this next section. But I want to stop for a second and maybe highlight what we've missed. Because it's important to see how we got to this city of refuge, refuge passage. Pash, passage. I might have, that might happen a bit. That might happen a bit. We'll see how we go. <clears throat> so, uh, since, since what we last read last week, uh, we've seen that in chapter 11, the Israelites, they go out and they, they fight more kings. There's a whole bunch more battles. And, and uh, spoiler, they win. And then in chapter 12, we get this really cool list. It's, it's quite unique in its composition, so check it out if you haven't seen it before. We get this cool list of all the kings they've beaten in this land that they're, that they're entering into. And we find out that they've already beaten 31 kings, which is a pretty good uh, win-loss ratio, if you ask me. And so then in chapter 13, we, we find that Joshua has now grown old. Uh, he's getting on in his, in his years, and he's potentially approaching the end of his life. And so God, in all of his grace and in all of his mercy, looks down on on Joshua, his faithful leader, and he says to him, you are now very old. Now, I'm not one to offer pastoral advice to God. I I don't think that's my role. But in my experience, typically that's not how you lead. Perhaps... God gets away with it because usually if you're the older person in a relationship, it's okay for you to make remarks about someone else's age. And I think God has Joshua beat by a few years here. Uh, Either way, we know that age is something noteworthy for people in Israel. It's something of honor, something of pride. And so God turns to Joshua and, and reminds him that he's getting old but also reminds him that Israel isn't done in their conquest of the land, that they haven't taken all of the land. That was that list of places that we read out just before. And so there's more work yet to be done, although unlikely to happen under Joshua's rule, under Joshua's leading. They can't stop yet. They haven't yet inherited all of the land. But we also come to this section and we see that this is a really important moment in the history of Israel because from from chapters 12 all the way through to chapter 22, they start to divide up the land they have. They begin to allot uh, sections of land to each tribe and to each people group. And and each tribe would then uh, give some of that land to individuals within their community. And so this would become their land and their inheritance. I mean, this is the thing that they've been waiting for, for decades. This is the pivotal moment that they have started to truly take the land, because it's not now just conquest, but also ownership, also inheritance. This is a massive moment in Israel's history. And yet we can come to these sections of the Bible from chapters 12 to 22 and they can become our skim read sections. Like reading the genealogy in Chronicles or at the start of Matthew, you know, you go, oh, there's a name and there's a name and there's a name that I, that one sounds cool. Uh, oh, I've named my kid that one. Um, and done. 
These can be skim-read sections in Scripture, and yet to their original audience, these are massive moments. The reason that Israel is entering this land goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 with the original promise that God made to Abraham. There, he says to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And later in verse 7, he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so the whole time, Israel, the Israelites, have been anticipating this moment. The descendants of Abraham have been waiting for this moment where they will take the land. They've endured famine. They've endured war. They've endured displacement and slavery and decades in the wilderness. And this is everything coming together. This is the promise that was made generations ago to one man being fulfilled for an entire generation. This is a cause for celebration, a testament to God's faithfulness, to his people and to his promises. And so even though the conquest is not over, this is the first taste to this generation of what God has in store for them. This is the first taste of the land that God has given them. These skim-read chapters are a big deal. And so as we read through the Old Testament, you might have picked this up, but the way that that Israel, the way that the Old Testament views land is very different to how we would view it today in our society in Australia. This land that, that God gives them this land that God gives Israel is perceived fundamentally different to how we look at our land. Because the land has two owners. Not one, but two. And so the first owner is Israel. Israel. That part makes sense. Each tribe and each member of the tribe would have their own portion of land allotted to them. And so this land was an inheritance. Inheritances are hard to steal. If you've ever been through that process of of will, uh, it's quite difficult to get something that is not given to you. And so so this, this land that is passed down from generation to generation is very difficult to be taken away. The land Israel were to occupy was a special kind of inheritance from God. And we see this play out throughout the Old Testament. In, in Kings, First uh, Kings chapter 12, there's this story of King Ahab, and he's out walking around his, his home, uh, out walking around his palace, and all of a sudden he sees this, this lovely vineyard nearby, this beautiful piece of land that would make for a great garden for himself. And so he goes out, and he's the king. I mean, of course he can have it. And he goes and he asks the owner of that land, can I have this vineyard for myself so I can make a garden in it? And if you were the the king, you would get what you wanted, and yet the owner of the land turns to him, recognising that he, he can't take it from him, that the land cannot be taken because it is this man's inheritance. And so the king goes out and he gets the man falsely accused and has him eventually killed, and even then he can't take the land. Because the prophet Elijah comes and opposes him, and the king has to repent instead. An inheritance cannot be taken easily, and the land could not be taken forcefully by another. 
And so the land is this, this essential inheritance that belongs to Israel. And yet, even though each Israelite would own a portion of this land, it was not completely theirs. I think if you were to, to say it was completely theirs, the assumption would be that they can do with it what they like. In fact, that they would be able to sell it to one another. But we read in Leviticus 25, verse 23, God says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Israel cannot sell the land. They, they loan it to one another. It's called selling in the Old Testament, but really it's a loan because you would purchase it from someone and you would work the soil for some kind of produce. And then at, and in the seventh year, you would have to return it to the one whose inheritance it was. And it's because the land is God's first and Israel's second. And as we look at this allotment of the land, in in this case, as the allotment of cities of refuge, we're reminded that everything is God's first and ours second. Our youth ministry has always had a pretty strong culture of prayer. It's something that we've emphasised from well before my time, so I take no credit to it. Uh, but, but we've had this, this culture of prayer around our leaders, and it expresses itself in that before and after every single youth service, we'll come together as leaders and we'll pray together, pray for the ministry that we're doing. And so when, it, when a culture's really healthy, that happens naturally. But eventually, culture can become habit, habit can become task, and tasks then get put in a tier list of importance. And so we went through this period where where prayer became something that was more of a task than a culture, and it was slipping. Maybe we'd come along and we'd have a lot to plan and a lot to get ready and a lot to set up, and so it would be just like a quick prayer and let's go. Or maybe we'd finish youth group and... Uh, believe it or not, sometimes we'd finish packing up at 10, 30, 11, and we're pretty tired and people have work in the morning. And so it's, ah, oh, we'll pray next week. Thanks, guys. Let's head home. Prayer could become something that was put on the back burner. And I was challenged on this because to not pray for your ministry is to, take, is to lay a claim over something that is not even ours. The ministry is God's, and so first and foremost, we need to give it to him. And I think that seems obvious. That seems natural, and it's very easy to say, of course, of course that's how that works out. But then when we start to think about other areas of our lives, it becomes murkier. It becomes less obvious. We're far less likely to give to God things that we think are ours in the first place. Places or things that we truly consider our own are harder to give to God. In viewing everything as inheritance, Israel would give back to God in everything they did. Whatever they produced, they would give some back to God. In their relationships with one another, they would give back to God by treating each other as they should in their marriages, in their education, in their time, in their rest, they would always give back to God. God was meant to be central 
because everything came initially from him. And God still intends to be central today. He hasn't changed in that matter. So it's for this reason that James, in, in, in James chapter 1 verse 7, can say every good gift comes from God. And Paul can encourage slaves to, to serve their masters as if they're serving God. Jesus can say anything done that is good to, what, to, to each other, to the least of these, is done unto him. And Paul can claim that even marriage is first and foremost a representation of Jesus' relationship with his church. In Ephesians 5, all we have comes from God, and so all we do should honour him. Our work should honour God, just as our conduct in the workplace should be honouring. Our our, our marriages should honour God first, and in doing so, we honour one another. In our education, we should honour God, using well what he has given us. In our retirement, we should honour God, resting and serving him. I encourage you, as we read about Israel in these Old Testament passages, not just to view them as, as people who have been given a strict law and who fail to follow it but also to see a people who were given an idea of how they could honour God and who struggle each day to put him first. The land that Israel is given here is a representation of God's provision for them. And the the encouragement is to honour him with what they have. What a challenge for us to, to pray and to consider how we might give back to God the things that we have laid sole claim to, the things that we view only as ours, but that God wants to be part of. Well, as we make it past the first verse and a half, I know it was a while in that first verse, but I really like this idea of the allotment or the designation of the land As we make it past that, we find that in chapter 20, we find out what the land is for, or what this portion of the land is for. It's being designated as cities of refuge, places of safety. And this started back in Numbers chapter 35, where God told the people that part of their land would be used for a specific purpose. It's part of the land given to the Levites, and so this land would be considered cities of refuge. They were were told to do this in the past and so they they follow what God said and they set aside these towns so that if someone accidentally killed someone else, they would have somewhere safe to go, somewhere to flee to. If a man killed another man or a woman a woman or crossed the way, it was commonplace for an avenger of blood, maybe a relative of the deceased or another person who would come and bring retribution on behalf of the deceased. And the whole purpose was to stop the unnecessary shedding of blood beyond that. To actually stop the idea of, uh, of seeking revenge, but instead retribution. That, that one person would die. Not families, not feuds, not more. 
But as we know, God is far more concerned with the heart of people than with the specifics of their actions. And so though he takes the loss of a life very seriously, he makes a distinction here between those who would murder and those who would kill accidentally. So these accidental killers were told to escape, to run away and to go to a city of refuge so they could be sure to live long enough to sit before a a council or a court and, and plead their case, show that the death was accidental. These cities were the place a person could go where they knew with confidence that they would not be killed as retribution. And interestingly enough, we read in Numbers chapter 35, we read uh, from verses 26 to 27, that if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which they fled, and the avenger of blood finds them outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. And so this city becomes not just a place to go in order to be safe, it becomes the place to go in order to be safe. The only place they could go and flee to. Now I've shared this before I think in a message, but uh, as a family we've always grown up and loved the ocean. And it's been the place that we've, we've gone for holidays, it's been the place we've bonded, the place we would spend most of our time camping was near the water. And, and as you would go there, you would take a boogie board, a kind of piece of foam, small surfboard, don't stand on it, you just kind of lie on it. Uh, and you would go and you would ride the waves in that. And so that became something that, that myself and my dad and my, my older brothers would do. Um, we bought flippers so that we could you know, catch bigger waves. It was, it was a whole thing. It was a great time. And so we would always go to different parts along the coast of Australia, or Victoria mostly, uh, in order to, to spend time by the water together uh, and also to be able to boogie board. And every once in a while when you were out there, you would have these moments where you would think to yourself, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep putting myself in this position? Because you'd be catching a big wave and as you're riding it, all of a sudden the front of your board would would catch on the water. And you would go from above the water to below the water almost instantly. And so the wave would then crash on top of you. And I distinctly remember a couple of times where this would happen, where you'd catch a wave, you'd get sucked under, the wave would crash, and you would feel your body hit the sand. And you'd go, oh, I've messed up. You would have this moment where all of a sudden, everything else goes out of your mind. You forget every other skill you know. Because all you can think about is the one place you need to be right now. The one place of safety that you want to get to. The only place that would make any sense. And that is the surface. All you can think about is breaking the surface of the water again. And being safe. It usually takes something serious or intense or dangerous to give us that single-minded focus on safety, on refuge. Whether it be the ocean for me or, uh, in Joshua's time, a city of refuge for an accidental killer, there will always be these moments in our lives where, where we just really want one place of safety. And yet these cities of refuge, they serve a physical purpose. They, they have a, a, a role in the society, but they're representative of a deeper truth. 
that in life there is only one true refuge, only one place of safety that is remotely worth seeking. David displays this idea beautifully in a a couple of Psalms. In Psalm 18, he says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. Or again, in in Psalm 31, he says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. David envisions God as his only place of safety. In the face of enemies or in the face of whatever is happening in his kingly life, God is the only trustworthy refuge he has. And we're surrounded by alternative offers of refuge. If you don't believe me, here we go. We're going to look at some chocolate slogans. Chocolate, right? Like you eat this. Here we go. Ready? Did you know that Snickers really satisfies? Really? Feeling tired? Have a break. Have a Kit Kat. Milky Way bars claim to be comfort in every bar, and you've got to make time for Toblerone. Cadbury claims to be the perfect way to end your day. And, and, and pure Hershey's is pure happiness. If chocolate can claim to really satisfy, to give you break, to bring comfort and pure happiness, if chocolate wants you to make time for it and wants to be the way you end your day, if that's what chocolate can promise, imagine what the rest of the world will promise too. Struggling? Doing it tough right now? Why not add another addiction to your life? That's the way to fill the gaps. Tired? You know what will fix that? Busyness. Let's do more. The achievement at the end will be worth it. Bored? What do you want? I got Netflix. I got binge. The things in our lives want to be the focus of our lives. But that's not how it should be with us. We've forgotten that God alone is our refuge. He alone is our focus. Snickers doesn't really satisfy. God does. Kit Kats won't give you rest. Jesus promised that. Milky Way bars won't bring true comfort. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Toblerone doesn't need your time. God does. Cadbury isn't the perfect way to end your day. God is. Hershey's isn't pure happiness. God provides pure joy. Don't go looking for refuge elsewhere. Don't go looking for safety. Don't go looking for comfort elsewhere. God is our refuge. 
He is our place of safety. And the beautiful thing about these cities of refuge is they were open to everyone, not just the Israelites. They're a place anyone could retreat to and they would provide continual safety. Anyone who resided in them knew they were always safe there. God wants to be our continual place of refuge, not our last resort. And this idea of continually being at refuge in God, I think is captured really well by our friends at Crossway. They wrote this song called Sanctuary, and it starts with these lyrics. I'm here in your garden. I've been here for a day. Here in your presence, a place where I pray. Your words are the flowers in fields where I lay. They're full of your kindness, your whispers of grace. God, you're my sanctuary. What a beautiful illustration of of a life that seeks sanctuary and refuge in God, in his presence, in prayer, in his word. This is the life that we're called to pursue to continually put aside other things that fight for our attention and for our devotion, to stop looking for satisfaction in things of the world and to run to God, who is our refuge. And as we put these things aside, his refuge only gets better. As we take our eyes away from the things that distract us, he only gets better. Well, finally, we've looked at the allotment of the land and and we've looked at the intention of these cities of refuge. But I, I also want to touch on this really interesting idea that we see, which is that if someone accidentally kills someone else, they they stay in this city until the death of the high priest. I don't know if you caught that. I think it's amazing because this idea in its time is somewhat out of nowhere. I mean, Leviticus 16, I think, is the most important passage in understanding the role of a high priest. And that is that that one day a year, they would come and they would make sacrifices for the entirety of Israel. They would intercede on behalf of everyone. And yet their life was never really seen as something that had an intercessory function. That the death of the high priest would mean anything significant. High priests weren't perfect. In fact, in order to go and to be before God, they would have to first sacrifice for themselves because they were uh, unclean, they, they would make mistakes, they were sinners like the people they were trying to serve. So they would sacrifice first for themselves and then for Israel. And yet it seems in this passage that the death of the high priest has some kind of redemptive function. In this case, it's social redemption that someone who was not guilty of murder could return to their own towns after the death of a high priest. If that's what a human priest can do, how much more can Jesus, a perfect high priest, bring about our total redemption? Hebrews talks about this idea. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 27, we read, Now there have been many of these priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. 
Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He committed no sin, so he did not need to sacrifice for himself, and yet in sacrificing himself, he he achieved redemption for people for all time. He's able to continually meet our needs. And so with the same confidence that one would walk out of a city of refuge after the death of a high priest, we can walk into the refuge of our God. I don't know if you saw during lockdown, but there were videos of, of people in high places, people in, in suits with important jobs, uh, in, in important meetings, doing important things, I'm sure. But, but in these meetings, they would be sitting there, they're talking to the camera, and you would see the door in the background creak open. And all of a sudden, in would race one or two or three little children, running around, causing a ruckus, talking to their parent who is in the middle of something important. And I think the most memorable one was one that was circulating a bit on the internet, which was a BBC interview with, um, with, I'll get his name right, Professor Robert Kelly, and and he's talking on international affairs on live television. And as he's talking on television, the door opens and in comes his children. And they come in with a confidence because they're coming to their dad. They don't need to know what he's up to. They don't care that he's on a Zoom call and live on television. He's their dad. So they can come to him. This is the kind of confidence we approach God with. When we seek him out, we are his children and he loves to be our refuge. Because of our high priest, We're completely forgiven and restored and welcome in his presence. So go this week, knowing that our high priest has made us able to honour God with all of our lives because he has provided a sacrifice that has no end. And our high priest puts us in right standing with God so we can look to him for our refuge, our sanctuary, and restoration. Our God is a God of refuge and he loves to give us rest. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you offer Jesus as a sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that through Jesus we have uh, confidence that it is finished, that you love us, and that you welcome us into your presence. And so, Lord, this morning we offer you the parts of our lives that we have laid our own claim over. We ask that you would come and move in our world and in our life. Lord, take it back since it was yours. And be our refuge. 
Lord, go with us. When we seek comfort in the world, draw us back to yourself. When we seek anything other than you, draw us back to yourself, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.